Sure. The title is Comparing What's Happening Today with What Happened During Perhaps the Most Notorious Era of Government repression in U.S. history of the Red Scare of the 1920s and also the 1940s and 50s, where people that were perceived as communists and dissidents were harassed and attacked, deported, executed because of their beliefs. And I'm obviously not arguing that what's happening today is exactly the same as that. There are a lot of really important political and cultural differences and also differences in severity and scale. But I think it's really useful to examine what's happening today in that historical context because we get to see quite clearly how these mechanisms of state power can be used against people that are perceived as dissidents. In this case, I would argue most heavily against animal rights and environmental activists who have been labeled by the FBI and Homeland Security as the number one domestic terrorism threat, even though they haven't actually harmed any human beings. And I think the real mechanism that's allowed that to happen is a lot like the Red Scare of using language and the power of fear. And one thing that your work touches on and others such as Carol Glasser have touched on this as well, of the fact that a lot of this uh, this repression is sort of in theory at least or, or maybe kind of in the language is used to target the more militant activists, but at the same time um, they've done this to sort of uh, draw a wedge between more militant and more moderate activists and for the moderate activists say, well, this isn't affecting me, it's only after those really militant activists, but then going after moderate activists as well. Um, and maybe you talk about even your own experiences with uh, the, this repression for what would be seen as maybe a more sort of above ground, you know, not particularly militant animal campaign. Yeah, and I think that dynamic has been steadily increasing over the years. I've been focusing on these issues since about 2000. And since then, I've seen tactics that really were originating and targeting, like you said, groups that were at least uh, portrayed as more militant or radical um, groups that often either publicly supported or even were engaged in illegal actions like property destruction, sabotage, um, stealing animals, or at the most extreme, arson. And that has steadily crept over the years to more and more mainstream organizations, um, to nonviolent civil disobedience and uh, steadily to groups like the Humane Society and the Sierra Club, which are arguably the most mainstream, above ground, um, publicly uh, known groups within these wings of the social movements. And I think that's a really key element of how this type of tactic works. Um, originally, the whole per point of these scaremongering campaigns was to make the more moderate groups feel that they had nothing to possibly gain by aligning themselves with the, the so-called radicals who were under attack. In fact, in my research, I documented quite extensively how more national uh, mainstream groups were actually sent letters and threatening um, contact by government agencies and politicians telling them that unless they publicly condemned, not just in their, uh, uh, in their rhetoric, but in their actions as well, the more radical groups, they would be investigated as supporting terrorism. And as a result, it really divided and fragmented movements I mean, between the more so-called radical groups and the more mainstream groups. And when you have social movements that are fragmented in that way, I think it makes it much easier to target people within them. And that's exactly the dynamic that happened. But now we have the point where 
groups like the Humane Society are still being targeted with this terrorism rhetoric. You have members of Congress have sent letters to the Department of Agriculture in the United States uh, labeling people who do undercover investigations as a terrorist threat. Um, so steadily, this, this rhetoric has crept uh, over and over again to more and more mainstream groups. And I know your work mainly focuses on the U.S., but you have been also you know, keeping track of what's been going on here in Australia, and, and you gave a talk all around Australia recently. So do you want to talk about the way in which some of this rhetoric is is creeping into the, the language of Australian politicians, for example, or any examples of proposed laws or laws being introduced which are kind of following this sort of green is the new red path here in Australia as well? What I've seen in my work is that these tactics have really been exported, in some cases directly through FBI and law enforcement, such as in Austria, where U.S. and U.K. Uh, counterterrorism officials met with Austrian law enforcement to talk about animal rights extremists and how to build a terrorism case against them. Um, but more broadly, what I've seen is that it's not always such a direct rela relationship. It's more... Uh, these tactics being exported by corporations and adapted to different cultural and legal systems uh, in order to, to protect their profits. And I think that's a really important point to understand about how um, this type of political repression operates today. You know, in the Red Scare, and I think historically, uh, political activists and especially the left have talked about repression as being government repression, as something that comes down from um, the state against dissidents. And I would argue that what we're entering now is more of a period of corporate repression, that the state is absolutely critical to enforcing this control and to locking up and harassing protesters. Um, but the main architects of this have been corporations. And I think that's a really important point um, to distinguish, because if we recognize that, and we recognize that we're existing under neoliberalism and global capitalism. Um, it really brings a different dynamic into play about how this repression works because corporations have no national boundaries. You know, they can travel freely across borders much more freely than human beings can. And when they do that, they're able to take those tactics with them. And I think that's what really what we see very starkly on display in Australia with these new so-called ag-gag proposals that, are aimed at people who document uh, animal cruelty on farms. And this is directly modeled after corporate attempts in the United States. Um, from the name to the type of legislation, it's a completely different legal system in Australia, but the common thread are these corporations in this agriculture industry who are trying to protect their profits. Yeah, for sure. Just to finish things off, just the opportunity for you to, to plug anything. I mentioned your website, but if you want to mention your website again or your Twitter or, or if you want to speak about your book or, or anything else you'd like to promote before you go. Sure. Um, yeah, I can be found in all of the typical Internet places. Uh, of course, my website is greenisthenewred.com, and that's the name of my uh, book as well, which can be found on the website and also on um you know, bookstores around the world and, and Amazon and things like that. Um, and also, if you're on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram, I can be found on there uh, through on Facebook as Green is the New Red and uh, on Twitter as at Will underscore Potter. And uh, if you listen to this, I'd be happy to if you sent me a message about that. And you know, it's really important to me to learn what's happening in other countries and to hear from activists and um, 
politically minded types all over the world. So um, thanks very much for, for talking to me about this. And if people want to check out the website, that'd be great.